This is NBR's Live from the Hive, a compilation of the week's top stories straight out of the beehive. Do you have something to add? Head over to nbr.co.nz and join the discussion. From the Beehive and Parliament, this is, wait for it, Bantamania. In that corner, he's like one of those little terrier dogs, nuggety. Won't let things go. Takes sharp little nips at your heels. And he's about the same size. Brent Edwards. And on this side, more like a bit of a mixer, with the intelligence of a border collie, the stealth of a German shepherd police dog, and the bark of a bloodhound once it's found its prey. Me, of course. <laughs> now, speaking of loud barks, David Seymour with his State of the Nation address. And, as if the treaty isn't enough, no, in a very similar vein to those that believe the earth is flat, I call for a flat tax rate. Brent. Well, that's Act's policy. Yes, I know. And it's in the coalition agreement. Well, most media pundits are saying that that would mean the poor pay more and the rich, well, they'd have well, more things to um, buy and like tra- and travel look, more and, un- and under, buy things and yeah, do other things. That under, sums it up. Under Act's um, policy, it would cut the number of current tax rates from five to three. Yes. Over time. Um, and so the, the main change that, which would affect people on lower incomes is that it would impose a 17.5% tax rate on all income up to 70,000 and that means yes. it would remove the 10% Ten, rate that's that applied right. to you know so yes That'd but, be it, more. but at the same time I mean the irony of it is then under Act's policy they would provide a tax credit to those people on low incomes what's the point? to try and make it's it seems a kind of complicated way to um, change the tax system but you know look it's it's in their, it was in their policy it's been in their policy for a long time yep. And it was in the coalition agreement, not the detail, but it was in the coalition agreement with National that National would look to incorporate X policy in tax changes it put forward. So are they going to look at it and then go, yeah, nah? Well, well, one of the interesting things was that, I mean, ACT at the time also, when, you know, when the latest sort of, when the preview came out, the pre-election update came out, yep. they said, look, National couldn't afford to go ahead with its tax plan. So, and it, it too was sort of indicating that it would slow down on its proposal. So just how much might be incorporated, I mean, we will have to wait for the budget to see the detail. Right. Why Singh will be made Associate Minister of Justice responsible for the Treaty Principles Bill? Is it to put him at arm's length from the Prime Minister? Well... Not trying to put him at arm's length from the Prime Minister, but it, it is X policy. It's it was something that they, that Act wanted as part of its coalition agreement. Then National, why, then why? National have agreed to it going to select committee. It's not a national initiative. Therefore, it does make sense that the party and the politician pushing it gets responsibility for shepherding. But it why through. didn't he do it uh, when he first announced um, all the positions? Well, I what, mean, I why has he waited what till over Christmas? Well, I mean, I think what happens is that, you know, they look at the detail of where they give responsibility for certain initiatives. So they probably, fair enough, they dealt with the main portfolios and he's obviously had another look at it. But I mean, this look, came about after all, you know, all well, of the hoo ha started well, there happening. Well, there were other, other um, you know, um, responsibilities announced too. But, but clearly, I think, yes, National does want to distance itself as much as it can, although it is a coalition agreement. A, a, coalition government initiative but National is trying to and I I mean I think from everything the Prime Minister has said Christopher Luxon has said I can't see the um, Treaty Principles Bill coming back from Select Committee and going any further in the um, legislative process You can't but he, well you can't see it but obviously the Prime Minister is not sure because otherwise he'd say that wouldn't he? Well no I I think he's pretty much We've talked about this 
Yeah, but he hasn't said it. Right. Like the Greens or not, you have to take your hat off to ex-climate change minister James Shaw. Time to go, he says. Gone as far as he can go. Thoughts, Brent? Yeah, look, I think that's probably... He's been, he'd been climate change minister for six years. If he looks at it, you probably think, well, that's probably the high watermark for in my political career. And particularly, I think, in terms of the work he's been doing on climate change in the political sphere. So... And, and in line also with Green Party, the Green Party, most of their co-leaders don't tend to last, you know, more than nine or ten years or so. You know, it's not a party where people stay on and on and on and on forever, you know. So, um, and prob- I guess from his point of view, you know, we all know politicians. I know people like to not politicians, but it's not an easy job. Um, so, you know, it, you can understand he's going to get out now. Well, once this um, members' bill that yes. he's responsible for March. goes through its process, um, but but interesting mm. because you know he got quite a lot of praise from um, Christopher Luxon and, and others, and of course part of that is why some in the Green Party don't like him. They think he compromised too much. He was too matey with the National Party, but um, James Shaw ran that line that he needed to get legislation and a framework in that was going to endure. And as he says, you know the Zero Carbon Act has survived a change of government. The government is saying it's not going to make any, you know, change it. The Climate Change Commission's in place. The targets are in place. There's disagreement over, you know, individual initiatives and policies to meet it. But so in that sense, I guess he walks away feeling he's done as much as he can in this place. Um, But I'm sure he'll probably pop up working on climate initiatives somewhere else. Well, Todd Muller said some nice things about him this week, as I saw as well. Could he he replace Rod Carr as head of the Climate Change uh, Commission because his tenure's up? Well, it's possible, I think, but I think James Shaw's been reported as saying that, no, not likely. But, I mean, because it wouldn't... he? Well, yeah, it wouldn't probably be quite a good idea for a politician to go into that job, although it is an independent body. And certainly, I think the... Well, he's um, got the credentials for and it. And certainly the signals from this government, certainly from nationalist part of this government, is, is that they're keen to continue working with James Shaw yeah. on climate change. And well, if not, so, if not there, I mean, where? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, don't rule it out, but I, I think, it, you know, probably unlikely. Where does that leave co-leadership of the Greens? Uh, who's in the running, uh, apart from Chloe? Yeah, look, I mean, Chloe Swarbrick seems to be the front runner. I mean, she, she you know, won Auckland Central again. Um, and But, you know, I'm sure one or two others will put their names forward, including possibly f- people from outside of Parliament. You don't have to be That's an MP right. to um, be co-leader. And if you remember, Russell Norman became co-leader while he was still outside Parliament and then came in relatively quickly. So, you know, you, you never know whose name might pop up and there is I think you hear some criticism of Chloe Swarbrick from some within the party of similar criticism of James Shaw that she might be seen as too sort of urban liberal and sort of you know but um, but you know It's she, almost like it's almost oh, too successful Yeah isn't it? But, but I mean she's probably the likely successor and um from you know reports, obviously she's considering putting her her name forward, and I wouldn't be surprised if that's the case no. and that she gets the the code. Is this going to cost the Greens any votes? And I'll put it to you this way: I read a bit of commentary with some saying they voted the Greens because of James Shaw. Yeah, look, it, it, it's hard to tell. There's no doubt that James Shaw did attract a constituency, and that the work he did. Um, you know, particularly around sort of reaching sort of consensus, particularly with the National Party, and, and that was largely with Todd Muller, yeah. around getting support for the Zero Carbon Act was pretty crucial. And that, that helped draw people in who perhaps, you know, saw that. But but for some in the Green Party, 
he and, and James Shaw himself has acknowledged there was stuff he would have liked to have gone further faster, but you know it was an issue about how much could you do to ensure that it endured because there was no point making if you like radical change to then see a new government come in as we have now that might then toss it all out and what he's put in place is going to survive largely the framework and so you know from that sense. Um, you know, he, he's succeeded. Well, there's never going to be radical change when money's involved. And if, he made, if we made all the changes that perhaps James Shaw wanted, who would be paying for it? You and me. I'm not saying right or wrong. I'm just saying it would be costly. Yeah, I guess his argument will be we'll pay for it sooner or later. Yeah, well, long after you and I are gone. Well, particularly you. All right, now, quick fire. Labor's appointed its policy council, which is all about revenue, developing party policies, yeah. former you advisors... Missed, sorry you missed out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> former advisors to Grant Robertson. On, uh, uh, but what do we make of the appointment of Michael, ex-minister Wood? Is this a signal he's on the way back? Well, yeah, but he was never on the way out. I mean, remember... He was on the way out. Well, Go, he, see you uh, later, toodaloo. You're out. I'm stood, disappointed in him. He stood as a candidate in a seat. He failed. If he'd won his seat, he'd still be an MP. But obviously he lost the seat. So, no, I've never, I've never heard from within Labor that that's the end of Michael Wood's political career. It's, it's, it certainly was a, a road bump in that career. But I think there are people who still hold him in high regard. And that, well, it's kind of like a speed limit wasn't yeah. it? And now someone's taking that speed limit away. And, and so, um, yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised. <laughs> and certainly, I think, yeah, certainly plenty within the party who I know spent quite a bit of time talking to him, convincing him, you know, worried that he might want to give it up and certainly making sure that he, he knew that he had had their right. support. National cuts to public services. Where are they with it? Redundancies here if you want it. I'm hearing from some certain government departments saying, come on, who wants it? Um, are frontline services threatened or not? Well, Nicola Willis has kind of, the finance minister has confirmed, well, yes, some frontline services might be affected, but she's making the point that they won't be, you know, ones that are essential. So it's going to be interesting because they do seem to be, and and they've gone out to, I think, a broader range of departments and agencies than they first indicated in their policy that they would. Um, So, and of course, when you talk about getting rid of back office staff anyway, you have to ask yourself what might be the impact on frontline services because if that's, that's, right. if that's back office work that needs to be done, then often you'll find your frontline service has to come in and do it. I mean, I think that's a, right. a comment's been made. Um, or police, for example, police, yeah. people answer the phones. Yeah, and so, so th- it's going to be interesting in the end. I mean, if they can find back office sort of functions that just do not need to be done, Okay, fine, but um, if they're cutting back office functions that still need to be done, who's going to do it? So I think there'll be a lot more debate to come around, you know, just how far those cuts go. But but Nicola Willis has made the point that they're not necessarily going to accept all of the proposals put for the, forward to them about cutting. Mm. So um, you know, they will, I guess, have to take into account how much impact whatever they do, will have on frontline services. Because if people start to see that they're not getting the services they were used to, uh, I guess they'll start to ask questions of the government. Speaking of which, I said quick fire questions. I, I didn't realise that you didn't. You thought it was a quick question and that, that didn't mean a quick answer. No, it was a quick fire question. Yes, you didn't but say a long, quick, a long like, fire do answer. Do you want a quick fire answer No, I <laughs> we're only a few days away from Waitangi. What else next week, Brent, or is it all about that with the house not sitting? All about Waitangi. Yep, that's good. That is beehive banter. Now, there's already three gone for the year, Brent. Uh, there's still a Cartany, Golris and Shaw. Any more maybe next week? I mean, we are into February. 
Look, you just don't know. After an election loss, you know, particularly those who've gone into opposition, some of the long-standing MPs, they mm. start to reconsider their positions. So, you know, maybe you want to go out the door no, now? No, I've written here one thing for sure. We're not going anywhere. <laughs> well, hopefully we'll see you next week. We appreciate your support. We'll see you soon. Not long answers. Okay, short answers. When I say quick fire... Now, what that means is you fade there, you see. So, like, we're still talking on, and, and you could have a shot at his face just going like this. Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website, nbr.co.nz. NZIER is the latest group to call for the government to provide better information on the risks posed by extreme weather events fuelled by climate change. To talk about that, I'm joined by Climate Change Minister Simon Watts. What do you make of this um, proposal from NZIR that there needs to be some sort of standardised, you know, consistent standard framework for kind of measuring the impacts and the costs uh, to property mainly from, from climate change, I guess, induced weather events? Yeah, well, look, I think it reflects the reality that the impacts of severe weather events have a significant uh, impact on our communities, but actually more broadly a significant impact uh, fiscally uh, for the Crown's balance sheet, uh, and particularly as you look long term. These events are occurring more often, uh, and we need good, strong data in order to be able to inform uh, that decision. We also need to move and have a very strong planning framework that overpins uh, and sits above all of that so that we move from sort of reactive response to these weather events to a more coordinated long-term approach because it is going to continue to happen and so we need to be able to be much more strategic on how we deal with it. Because um, the insurer IAG, the group, had approached the government back in 2022, the previous government obviously, with a kind of a three-step plan and saying there needed to be, again, much more consistency and also a clear view around where to build and where not to build. To, do, do you, from your perspective as Minister, is that in place yet or how much work needs to be done so that we stop uh, future problems with property that might be built in flood-prone areas even today? Yeah, well, look, we're, we're 45 days into the new government. What is clear is, is there is a significant work program required in order to put in place the building blocks uh, for us to be able to manage the impacts of uh, severe weather events and climate adaptation. Uh, I've seen this as, and have reinforced uh, to officials that this is a significant priority as Cl Minister for Climate Change, uh, and I am wanting to progress uh, work, particularly around a... Uh, climate um, adaptation framework that provides that strategic wrapper in effect over and above uh, that in effect brings together the key entities which is your local government entities, your Maori iwi communities which are at the forefront of, of climate and weather events uh, because of their geographical positions, uh, banks and insurers uh, and central government and uh, I'm working on that and, and hopefully be able to announce a little bit more of, about that soon but it is a critical part that is missing uh, and the government uh, previously talked around the climate adaptation uh, bill, uh, but we never had anything tangible in that regard, but we do need to progress it. How urgent is it? It's significantly urgent. We saw that reinforced. You know, we're now 12 months on from the weather events that, in effect, had catastrophic impact both in Auckland but also in 
uh, the, the Gisborne and Hawke's Bay areas. 12 months on, time travels fast, and we still don't have that strategic framework in place. And so it is a significant priority. And I think it's a significant uh, priority in terms of the, the Crown's fiscal exposure as well. You know, I've said many times, this is one of the most significant risks to the Crown balance sheet, particularly as you look 20, 30, 40 years out from now. And so it's incumbent upon uh, the government of the day, uh, which is us, in order to put those things in place. And I'll be doing that collaboratively with the industry, with private sector, with banks and insurers, with Māori iwi, around pulling together that framework. And uh, in, in a manner in which is across party as well, because we need a bipartisan position around that. It needs to be sustainable and it needs to uh, be able to uh, you know, develop and grow uh, as we do as well. I think this latest report too, though, makes the point that it's also equal risk to, I guess, household and business balance sheets, particularly those who might have property that's at risk either from rising sea levels or, or flooding or, or slips caused by. And, I mean, the argument seems to be with the, that a standardised sort of uh, framework would enable property owners to be clear about just how much risk they faced. Uh, and so how important do you think it is to involve, I guess, individual property owners, businesses, households? Well, look, you know, the position is is that we need you know, a lot more information and availability of information. If we can get that in a standardised manner that allows uh, individual households to be able to you know, manage their own risk or at least get an assessment of terms of where their risk is, I think that's an important aspect and it's reasonable that they should be able to get that perspective. But also their ability. You know, we support devolution and we support that local communities know their local issues best. Uh, and we need to be able to get that fine balance between you know, a national planning framework and principles around that and the ability for local communities and local households to execute the changes that are required in order to mitigate that risk. And so that's the balance that we need to work through uh, and that's the work that is you know, underway at the moment. Because isn't there a risk, I guess, to the government's fiscal position is that if property owners, particularly households, don't have that sort of information, then they're just going to think, oh, well, the government's going to sort this out. They're going to step in if we get into trouble. That's right. And, you know, we've all got a role to play in in terms of dealing with this. This is a risk that is, you know, it's actually an issue. It's, it's happening to us already. Uh, and so uh, it is incumbent upon us to act around that. I think there's another component as well. I mean, the government is a significant, in effect, market maker of infrastructure investment that in some ways uh, is able to mitigate some of the climate risks around that. And so in terms of uh, the government's ability to put in place resilient infrastructure that mitigates the impact of climate impacts in effect allows the private market to be able to insure. Because sometimes when insurers say they're not going to insure, that's because they're unable to price that risk. And so we've got to be cognitive of that market dynamic as well, and also the role in which the Crown and local government plays in that. But again, we have to do that as a system-wide response together, uh, and that's the work that we're looking at. So, so will, you, will you work out, I guess, some principles around making some of those decisions? I mean, you know, it might be whether you build a flood bank here to protect those properties, the cost being this much, but maybe over here the cost of building that same flood bank is going to be way up here. I mean, so how, how do you, I guess, make those trade-offs to say, well, it's worth doing it here, but we won't do it there, and therefore you might be looking at managed retreat? Yeah, well, that reinforces the current state. We don't have clear principles or a guiding framework to enable us to even quantify the range of options and decisions that we have in front of us. You mentioned managed retreat. That is one option on a paradigm of options around how people you know, um, prepare and prevent and, and adapt in terms of the risk. Managed retreat is, is at one end of that. 
Uh, but we need a clear framework so that at least uh, you know, individuals and communities understand where they sit on that paradigm and the options available for them. I think we have to be careful, though, not to try and micromanage every single outcome because that's not physically possible and nor should we. Uh, but we should have some of those guiding principles. And those guiding principles have to ask, ask the really difficult questions around compensation for loss. The challenge that we have at the moment without a framework is, is that decisions are made because they need to be made, say in the Auckland situation or in the Hawke's Bay, but we do risk setting precedent in terms of some of those fiscal decisions in particular that may or may not cause implications for us long term because of the scale of the, uh, of the issue at a country level. And that's something that I think uh, is important for us to mitigate through a clear framework. When would you want the framework to be developed? How Look, soon? Uh, you know, I'm progressing this as, as fast as possible uh, and you know, we'll hopefully be able to provide some more guidance on that uh, soon. But uh, as I said, uh, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when that next event comes uh, and it is incumbent on us to have that framework in place you know, as fast as possible in parallel with the capability to be able to deliver and, and execute upon a localised event. So we have to be able to deal with the emergency response phase effectively. But in addition, we need that planning framework in place as well. Simon Watts, thank you for your time. Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website, nbr.co.nz. Prime Minister Christopher Luxon has begun the year warning of the danger of New Zealand becoming more polarised. To discuss, let's bring in NBR political editor Brent Edwards. So, Brent, where does this stem from? Look, I guess in part it stems from this debate over the Treaty of Waitangi, particularly the ACT Party's push to define the principles of the treaty, which a bill will go to select committee, although under the coalition agreement National haven't. Um, committed to supporting it beyond that. Uh, but I, I suppose it follows on from some of the um, tensions we've seen from the the COVID-19 pandemic. You think of the occupation of parliamentary grounds in early mm. 2022. So just a sense of, yeah, more polarisation. And, and he made the comment that, you know, obviously he's worked around the world and he's seen polarisation in a number of other Western liberal democracies and I mean I think probably the United States stands out for that in terms of polarisation but also maybe when you look at the United Kingdom with the debate over Brexit um, and I mean I guess his, his call was for you know trying to avoid that and mm. that despite disagreements people should still be able to walk across the room and talk to one another about those disagreements. But is an acts treaty of Waitangi principles polarising though? Yeah, well, that, that, that's the interesting thing, and because I, I obviously he's making these comments in the context of that, and you know, probably the government, the coalition government, could have avoided some of this um, tension by just not not proceeding with that uh, principles. I think there are probably a fair number of people say, look, it's it's not worth the bother. Is it really going to achieve anything? But again, he points out. We're in an an MMP environment. It's not something that National's pushing or wants, but the ACT Party wanted it, and so it's in there as part of the coalition agreement. But as I say, with National not committing at all to supporting it beyond a select committee, and I I think it'll end at that point. But, you know, so so it's a combination. It's it's part of the MMP environment, which actually requires parties to compromise a bit. So there you've got National Party, if you like, compromising by allowing ACT to at least take that particular policy initiative of theirs into legislation 
to Select Committee for consideration. Well, how much weighting should be on his hopes of unification then? Yeah, well, I mean, clearly, you know, it's created quite a lot of heat and argument and debate, and some of the language probably has got quite extreme around it. I mean, I think, you know, National's been accused of being white supremacists and in in the same way ACT has accused the previous Labour government of being racist because supposedly Mm. it was, you know, um, privileging Māori ahead of non-Māori and the like. So so I think a lot of the language isn't helping the debate and I think um, as we... Look, to the end of the week and into next week with Waitangi, you, you know, you expect some really robust debate there. And, I mean, robust debate's fine. It's, I guess it's a matter, though, if, if it becomes so divisive that people just peel off into their separate camps and just don't talk to one another. And I think that's what Christopher Luxon is probably getting at. Are there risks that it will ratchet up after Ratana? Well, it, it's risks that it will ratchet up at um, Waitangi. I mean, Ratana's mm. been... Uh, already done and dusted. Yeah. Um, and there was, you know, obviously strong comment there, but I think, you know, it was part of that robust debate is what, as, as you'd expect. So, um, you know, there, but there are risks here that it will become... But that's not the only issue, of course. I mean, you know, there are other issues that, you know, can divide... I guess the country, and and I think, think the point that Christopher Luxon says is not that we should all agree on everything, because people will have different views of whether it's on the treaty, whether it's on tax policy, economic policy, mm. social policy, educate all of that. I mean, and that's why you have political parties and you have a democracy. But I guess it's a matter about you know when do you allow that debate to get so divisive that you you split apart and you're not talking about it. I kind of it's interesting in the context too that we've had James Shaw stand down as co-leader of the Green Party um, this week. And, you know, James Shaw faced criticism from within his own party because he was seen as accommodating too much the views, of you like, of the centre-right party. But but he did that, again, as part of the MMP environment mm. to try and make compromise to get the Zero Carbon Act through, which he did, so that you can get enduring legislation. So, you know, I mean, the... Strong supporters of any particular party don't want to see compromise. They want their policy put through all the way. But, I mean, obviously our political system, particularly with the MMP, does require compromise. And, I mean, in a way that hopefully counters that polarisation that you do see in the United States and the UK, for instance. Mm, But it's not as strong as you'd see in the United States, though. The polarisation. Mm, mm. No, it's not. I mean, again, because MMP, I think, counters that because mm. it does require political parties to work with other political parties. You know, the, no one single party is going to get power, all the power. I mean, even though we did have a majority Labour government in the last terms, but generally MMP requires political parties to work with other political parties. Actually, not just in the coalition, for instance, that we've got now, but also on our, some issues to, you know, across across the House with the opposition. And I think you've seen that around climate change, even though people disagree with a number of policy initiatives. But the overall framework, there's certainly been agreement between Labor, National and and the Greens, and a large part of that was probably to the work that James Shaw did. Brilliant, Edwards. Thank you. And that's been this week's Live from the Hive. Thanks for listening.